Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Sandy Greenberg about his memoir, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend, a riveting reflection on his most extraordinary life. Blinded at age 19, against all odds, Sandy graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Columbia University, was a Marshall Fellow at Oxford University, and earned a PhD from Harvard University, and went on to have one of the most remarkable careers ever. Sandy Greenberg, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I'd like to start our conversation a bit by talking about your background growing up in Buffalo, and it was formative, obviously, as most childhoods are for kids. But yours was interesting in many ways. So start, if you could, by talking about your dad. Sure. My father escaped from Nazi Germany in 1939, and uh, he was he was a tailor. He came here and worked very diligently, and he was a good one at that. He married my mother a couple of years later, and my relationship with my father was unfortunately short-lived. We had some sweet times together, but unfortunately, he died when I was five, and uh, that death devastated me. He left my mother, Sarah, with $54 and three children under the age of five to raise. She decided that she needed some help, and so she approached a social welfare agency, and they said they would be glad to accommodate her so long as she separated her three children and put them into three separate orphanages, which, of course, to her was just anathema, and there wasn't a prayer that she was going to do that. My mother was resolute and quiet and did everything she could to protect her family, uh, including uh, working extraordinarily hard at the Curtis Wright Aircraft Facility in Buffalo, making uh, airplane parts for the war effort. And then, in addition, working as a sales lady and a couple of other places. She housed her mother, my grandmother, and uh, my grandmother was in a way almost like having a second mother. She came over from a little nowhere place in Eastern Europe and somehow got to London where she operated a candy store. When she was eight years old, she was babysitting and a spring from a cradle burst into her eye, requiring her to have a glass eye. You write of her, Sandy, that she passed on to you a spark of life, stability, endurance, and wisdom. Yes, sir. And without her, I... I don't believe I would have the uh, the self-confidence to have done what I did. 
You described your childhood from after your dad passed as being difficult. You say of yourselves that you were poor and that you understood the very tenuous nature of your existence, which in turn led you to have a generalized anxiety disorder that it was in your life as if you were living in some sense in the dark ages. Yes, sir. Well, it um, poverty does crazy things to people. And uh, it was it was difficult to get my bearings, as I'm sure it was for my mother after my father died. Uh, my mother, however, met my uncle, who was my father's brother. And five years after my father died, she married my then uncle, Uncle Carl, who became my second father. And Carl was a junk dealer, but was able to make it possible for us to live in a much more respectable neighborhood and uh, quite different from the flimsy wooden house that we grew up in. And that changed all of our lives. And certainly without Carl, there is no way that we children would have been able to create the careers that we created. It's an interesting Jewish tradition of the brother of the deceased marrying the widow and sort of taking responsibility for the brother's family. Yeah. And you moved to the other side of town, if you will, and that leads us to your meeting one Sue Rosino. So tell us a little bit about when you first laid eyes on Sue Rosino and how that all worked out. Well, fortunately, I can report many decades later that it worked out just fine. I did not know when I first saw her that that would happen. In fact, when I first saw her and uh, frankly just fell in love with her, she paid no attention to me. And she knew, I believe, that I was very interested in her. But sixth grade is when we met. And in sixth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade, she really never talked to me. And of course, that's very natural because uh, I never spoke to her. I was too, too shy. Then in eighth grade, the Buffalo Evening News had a spelling bee. And uh, Sue and I were the two finalists. And silhouette was the word that had to be spelled in the final analysis. And uh, I spelled it right, which was a dangerous thing for me to do in light of the fact that I were, was interested in garnering her attention. She, uh, she misspelled it, unfortunately. But despite that unfortunate incident, she took notice of me so that by the time we got to high school, she was willing to uh, 
God on a date with me, and that began a romance of several decades that has been the joy of my life. You had quite a high school career. I was reading the notes in the 1958 high school yearbook, and it says of you that you were president of the class, president of the student council, president of the Buffalo Interhigh School Council, editor of the school yearbook, chief counsel of the high school, member of the high school Hall of Fame, cross-country and track team member, prom king, and member of the Legion of Honor and, and Key Club. So I would expect that by this point, Sue thought, well, maybe I've got myself a keeper. I think that's uh, pretty accurate, although as fate would have it, that view of me was to change in a few years. Yes, and we'll talk about that in just one moment because what happens is these years, which you write as having been filled with sunlight, love, friendships, and vibrancy, and then to your mind, some enormous accomplishments, catapult you into a admissions to Columbia University where I expect, like most college freshmen, you thought that the world was opening for you and it was filled with opportunity. Yes? Yes, sir. So you arrive at Columbia, and interestingly, when you enroll, you think that you'll perhaps do a joint program between Columbia University and the Jewish Theological Seminary. So what led you to think about perhaps doing that joint degree and then what happened with that early plan? Well, I was I was raised in a rather religious household, became devoted to the study of the Bible and the Talmud and other sacred texts. And uh, I thought it would be good to not only get a secular education, but to get one that was uh, religious in nature and had seemed to me to be the ideal package. However, once I got to Columbia and once I was initiated into the most sacred treasures of knowledge across the millennia, I was completely absorbed in that world, never really to return from it. You say of it that the secular intellectual climate at Columbia swallowed you up in a way that you never could have anticipated. Yes, sir. You wrote something that was interesting. Well, the whole book was interesting, but you wrote something that was interesting in this early part of your tenure at Columbia. You said that you would walk by the statue of Hamilton on campus and you would ask yourself whether there was any ideal or objective to which you could harness the same zeal that Hamilton had brought to his life's ambitions. 
And you said this question sort of interested you or inspired you to pursue great aspirations for yourself, your country, and for the world. So can you talk about that? Because you don't really think of college freshmen looking at a statue of Hamilton and saying, this inspires me to do great things for myself, my country, and for my world. I think that you were probably an outlier in the way you looked at that statue. Fair point. Yeah, it's it's a crazy thing, but, you know, my uh, many members of my family were decimated by the Nazis and those remaining, including both of my fathers, came to a country where they could live in freedom. And to me, that gift meant that I was obligated, in a manner of speaking, to do something to reciprocate the opportunity that this country gave me. And uh, what better way would there be than to serve the country? And as we'll discuss as well, you did. So here you are, uh, a freshman in college, looking at the statue of Alexander Hamilton, dreaming big dreams. And you write that as you're sort of walking there on the quad, you see a, a fellow freshman sporting a trendy crew cut who introduced himself to you and he would later become your roommate. So who was this fellow freshman sporting this trendy crew cut? His name was Arthur Garfunkel. And um, he came over and for some reason, we, we hit it off and uh, became friends. Now, the interesting thing about Arthur was that he had quite a different take on the universe, somewhat different from mine. And one day after class, he asked me to come over and this is about Amsterdam on 118th or so. He said, Sanford, I want you to look at this patch of grass. He said, I want you to really look at it. And I scratched my head and I said, my God, what is, what is this man about? And he was giving me a disposition on how the light of the colors of the grass quite spectacular and provide a palette of complexities that one could hardly find elsewhere. And that changed my life. I never knew anyone. I mean, all of our friends, the you could call them jocks or students or whatever name you'd like to call them, but there was no one who talked about nature and, in fact, that view of my life changed the way in which I experienced nature and life itself. You write of yourself that you had a duality to your person, your nature. You were a doer and a dreamer. And that at this point, the doer had stepped forward and took the helm and the dreamer lay dormant biding its time. And then you meet this fellow, Art Garfunkel, who was a dreamer first and 
foremost, speaking of alternative colors of grass, and you said of it that you recognized at once that something of great importance was being granted to you. Uh, you just didn't realize how important it was at the time. But this friendship took you through your dreamer part with conversations about music and art and film and comedy. Yes? Yeah. So can you flesh that out a little bit for us, how that friendship evolved between the two of you and how it helped evolve you, Sandy Greenberg, as a human being? I guess the best way to answer in that question is to tell you about a little incident that he and I had at Columbia in the days that we were there. There were two lions, two concrete lions that stood aside from low library. And one day we climbed on top of the lions and we took out uh, Thornton Wilder's play, Our Town. And we read it and were really transmogrified because the protagonist, Emily, had asked a question that we were grappling with. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? And that became our perspective from then until now. And that was the beginning of a slide, a happy one into intellectual adventures, creative ideas, and simply just devouring life. It is a live life to the fullest, appreciating that time is the most valuable commodity that we have, way more important. They say time is money, but reality, time is the most precious gift that we have. And you and Arthur Garfunkel seem in full appreciation of that, and you were about to make the most of it. Is that a fair assessment? I, I would say that's a very fair assessment. And I appreciate your saying it. Sometimes when people say things, they clarify things for other people. And I think that was very, very good clarification for me. So somewhere in around the end of your sophomore year, your vision becomes what you called cloudy. And... But you thought of it at the time as being more of a nuisance than a threat. There was too much going on for you to be bothered with this minor inconvenience. So can you talk about that and take us perhaps through to your trip to Detroit? Yeah, well, it, it really began during the game that I was uh, pitching in. It was about the seventh inning, and things had been going pretty well. And then suddenly, trees 
and the ground and my wrist began to separate and I couldn't make any sense of it. And then it was shrouded by the steamy, cloudy environment that I couldn't make any sense of. And I remember almost hitting the batter and I knew that that was it for me. So I stumbled off to the sidelines and dropped to the ground. And it turns out that Sue Rosino, my girlfriend happened to be there and she put my head on her lap and asked me what had happened. And I told her I had no idea, except I was having trouble seeing. After a number of minutes, the cloudiness disappeared and we went about our business as usual. But then it returned and returned and returned. And I saw another ophthalmologist, one different from my initial doctor. And he told me that I had allergic conjunctivitis and that if I took these, these drops, neo-hydelprosol, that things would be healed pretty quickly, which of course they were not. And then when I went to another doctor who was allegedly the best in Erie County, he gave me topical steroids over a sustained period of time, months. And that actually caused me to lose my eyesight. Your, the corticosteroids that were prescribed to you by your Buffalo ophthalmologist actually exacerbated what was glaucoma, undiagnosed glaucoma. And so in some sense, the corticosteroids was the exact opposite of what you should be taking because they can induce or make worse glaucoma. And ultimately in 1961, you see Dr. Sugar at the Detroit Sinai Hospital, and what does he tell you? In a word, he sentenced me to a life of darkness. When he examined me, called me over, or after he examined me, called me over to another part of his office where my mother was sitting. And he said, well, son, you're going to be blind tomorrow. I, I had no way of understanding that. And yet I knew that he was telling me the truth. And in fact, the next day after he performed surgery, I was in fact blind. And have been blind ever since. Ever since February 13th, 1961. Yes, sir. You say of that, that surgery destroyed your vision, but it saved your your eyes, the physical eyes, uh, which is good. But you said of it on reflection that there is a moment that occurs at least once in everybody's life. The instant just after bad news has been given, when you suddenly look back on your life and say, my God, I did not realize how nice I had it until then. 
which would probably be the end of the thought for most people. And you would be returning to your Buffalo family home and, I don't know, making cane seats for chairs as often is been the history of people who were blind. But you write that you're not even sure whether that was your worst day. And you said of yourself, which I think is just testament to your remarkable nature, that the gods hadn't yet raised me so they could bring me so low. So talk a little bit about this. I mean, here you are, 19 years old, having been blinded by medical malpractice, but yet you have maybe your grandma Pauline's voice in your ear saying the gods hadn't raised me to have my hopes so quickly dashed. So talk a little bit about this, because it's remarkable to me. Well, I guess the truth of it is that uh, that's precisely what happened. My sights were so high at Columbia, there's no question but that I was on a path that was going to lead me to greater things after I graduated. But the fates had a different view. And so I sunk into a reservoir of such depression. That's hard to describe it. So there you are in Buffalo, having had this life-altering surgery, and you're depressed, but there's latently within you this resolve to not quit. And you get a visit from Arthur Garfunkel, and you and he have a conversation as you walk down the avenue. You write that he says, after this conversation where you say, you know, sort of woe is me in a sense, he says, look, you got to come back to Columbia. It's the only reasonable thing to do. And you reply saying, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I don't even want to discuss this. And he says, well, you're going to have to discuss it. I'm going to make you discuss it. And tell us about that and what was the aftermath of this conversation with one author Garfunkel? To say that it was a difficult conversation would be a gross understatement. I didn't want to engage with him, but he had flown up from New York just to see me, and I felt I owed him a response. But when we started that little voyage down the street, there was no way in hell that I was going to go back to Columbia. He, he just didn't get it. You know, blindness is a different kind of thing, you know. It's, uh, it's big. And how one could conceive of dealing with it was certainly beyond my abilities. But we continued to talk. And I suppose that there was a moment in time when he told me the story of Philoctetes, who was injured, his leg festering, living alone on an island, 
but he was given great armamentarium to protect himself by the gods. And he came back through Odysseus to conquer Troy. So he said, uh, Sanford, why don't you come back with me and conquer Colombia? You don't hear such outrageous things when you're at the bottom of life's adventures. But it was because of him, as I say in the book, but also for him, that I returned. You wrote in the book that early in your friendship with Garfunkel, that you and he made a commitment to one another that you would be there for one another in times of crisis and that this chit that you each would cash in many, many times over the 50 plus years of your friendship. And so this was his honoring, if you will, of this commitment that he would be there for you in this time of, of crisis. Yeah, that, that's what he said to me. I told him it didn't count. This was aside from our solemn covenant. But he, he pleaded with me and said that you, you have to come back. You're my best friend, aren't you? I said, yeah. So you got to come back and be with me. It was just uh, hard to say no. Well, the world is much better off for your having said no. And I, think, for... I, think, I think the world's better off because of Arthur's voice and his spirit. That's what the world's better off for. Well, yes, and also your willingness to hear that voice. One can speak, and if no one hears the voice, the wisdom of that speaking voice is unacted upon. Whereas you write of yourself that you had this compulsive endless hunger for ideas and that you came to the conclusion that it was really people and ideas that were the only things worthwhile in life. And so returning made sense given that outlook. Do I have that right? Yep. You're absolutely right. So tell us a little bit, because you think today in 2022 that while a blind student would have many, many, many obstacles to overcome, there are many things that make it easier. In your day, it wasn't the case. There weren't the books on tape and cassette players and micro this or that. Tell us about your return to Columbia and what I consider to be this Herculean effort that allowed you to graduate Phi Beta Kappa from Columbia two years later. Well, see, it may appear to you or to others that this was a Herculean effort led by me and that I was the hero of the story and all that. But 
the truth is that the real hero of this story was my wife, Sue, my girlfriend, then my wife. Because you see, she had a choice to leave me, not to leave me. And she decided, despite the overwhelming difficulties, to stay with me. Then I had Arthur, similarly decided to stay with me, not leave me. And then, of course, there was my family, my friend Jerry Spire, number of other friends who really just wouldn't give up on me. So the Herculean effort was really shared by many, many people. And those are the people that I am indebted to and will always be indebted to. And fair enough. But I think that which I'm trying to tease out of you a little bit, which I found so interesting and inspirational, is that you say that, yes, I had this network of friends and you had tape recorders and readers and all of that, which helped you navigate being in college and blind. But you say that the collective force of Western intellectual tradition also helped save me from your words, slumping on a porch in the Western hinterlands of New York. So talk about that, because I thought that that was really instructive about who you are and sort of your determination and resolve to do like Alexander Hamilton when we talked about him earlier on in our conversation. Well, as I said to you before, when I arrived at Columbia, it opened a new world for me. I was initiated into these credible treasures of knowledge that were passed on to us millennia after millennia. And to me, it was the best of Western civilization that I was granted the opportunity to study and to study with people who were so passionate, so deeply in love with what they were studying. That was a bulwark for me in going forward. Without that, I don't think I would have made it. Well, and made it, you did, as the expression goes, in spades. You graduate Phi Beta Kappa from Columbia. You earn a Marshall Fellowship at Oxford. You obtain a PhD from Harvard. And so this driving to learn what the best of Western and probably Eastern civilization had to teach you absorbed like a sponge, which I think is quite a testament to you. But I'd like to turn from this sort of serious thing, which you say that it's 1964 and you're at Oxford, you and Sue are at Oxford and you're essentially broke (laughs) <laughs> and Oxford is sort of breaking you. It's going to be incredibly difficult. 
and you get a call from Arthur and tell us what he asked of you. Uh, it was a very strange call because he started out by telling me how disappointed he was by the study of architecture and that he wanted to leave that field and go into another field. Now, you have to understand from my perspective, I felt Arthur would be one of the greatest architects alive. And he was so abundantly talented and extremely insightful. He could provide better ways for we humans to live together. But he was not with that anymore. And he said, I want to go into the music business with my friend Paul, who I had earlier met during college. And uh, I was very disappointed. I felt a great talent was being taken away from the world. But I said what I knew I had to say and wanted to say, which is, what can I do for you? And he said, Sanford, I need $400. Arthur, you will have it. I knew that we had $404 in our savings account. And frankly, <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't want to share this news with Sybil. But I told him he would have it. And that day I went to the bank, got a check, and sent it to him. And he went into the music business with his friend, Paul. How'd that work out? <laughs> you tell me. Yes, yes. The rest is history, as they, right. they say. I want to go back in time again, because there was something that you wrote which was interesting. And that was about your conversations with the social worker at the Institute for Blind Persons and sort of the admitting of your blindness and becoming independent. So can you walk us through that a little bit? And then maybe you can end this part of the conversation with your leaving that office and having to go back to Columbia by yourself. You could take us through that yeah. stage of your progression. Well, I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I went in to see this woman, but it was suggested that this was the Institute for Blind Persons and they could help me get through this terrible muddle I was in. And so I came in and I explained to her that I wasn't blind, that I had difficult seeing, but she immediately said, what do you mean you're not blind? You're blind. And the sooner you recognize that, the better off you'll be. So we started off with a bit of a contentious meeting. And I knew that what I was doing by asking Arthur to take me around the city or asking any of the other friends of mine to do similar things, but that was being unfair to them because it was taking time away from their lives. 
So I went to see her a number of times and she tried to show me the benefits of a cane, the benefits of a dog, the benefits of being independent. And to me, that was a way of stripping me from my dignity. And I would have none of it. And finally, at our last meeting, I couldn't stand anymore. I just left. Arthur was there waiting for me, and we walked out onto Broadway in this beautiful, sunshiny day. And it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. And Arthur turns to me and says, Sanford, I can't take you back to the dorm now. I've got a uh, sketch of the Seagram building that's due tomorrow morning for architecture school. And I said, Arthur, it won't take you that long. He said, Sanford, it'll only be a few extra minutes if you come with me. And we began having a intense conversation. And about halfway through it, he said, so Sanford, if that's the way you want it, so be it. He turned around and walked away. And I was left in the middle of rush hour, alone. And there was a streak of fear that came upon me, the likes of which I only felt a few times in my life. But I had no choice. I had to move forward. I had to get back to Columbia because, you see, I had to meet a reader. In this case, a reader happened to be Michael Mukasey. And I had to be back there by 4 o'clock. So I started walking through the subway system. It was as harrowing as you might imagine. Continued to hit many, many objects, including human beings, little children, and briefcases, and police baskets. And got plenty of blood all over me. And there was a moment in time when I sort of froze and I felt in tune whether it was a coffin or some space that had no air in it. After a few minutes of standing there being frozen, I shook it off and I got to the shuttle that took me across town to get a train back to Columbia. And I did that. And I got off at Broadway in 116. A man bumped into me and said, oops, excuse me, sir. And of course, it was Arthur who had followed me the entire way. And I would say that episode defined me then and it defines me now because I walked into the subway with one belt and shell and I came out completely transmogrified because now I felt that if I could traverse the New York City subway system blind there was nothing I could not do. And so fear and change and all those things that I was frightened of vanished and I began living a new life.
which I'm still living to this day. Indeed, you write that when you made it back to Columbia and Arthur was there to meet you, having created this situation, he didn't have any, he didn't have any sketch that was due. He just said, you know, Sandy, if you're going to be independent, you've got to be independent. And he created this test. Yes. Which you passed. Uh, and he was there to congratulate you. And you write of it that that moment of arrival and meeting Garfunkel was the moment of triumphant survival. It was the moment when fear, the fear of risk, the fear of movement, the fear of change was vanquished from me forever. Quite a test, your friend, Art Garfunkel created for you, which you passed as you've done for all the tests that life seems to have put no, in no. Way with flying colors. You'll be interested to know that to this very day, Sue is still angry at Arthur for putting me through that test. Ah, uh, well, that's something that those two have to work out, right? <laughs> I agree. I yeah. And we say you vanquished fear and people should know and we're not going to have time to talk about everything that you have done over the years. We mentioned the degrees you've gotten, but some of the things that you did, you were a White House fellow. You invented a compressed speech machine, which allowed for the speeding up of, of speech without distortion. You were on the Council of Foreign Relations, a fellow at the Academy of Arts and Sciences and Chairman of the Board of Governors at the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Clinic. These accomplishments, I think, are something about which you should have unending amounts of pride. But you say that you seldom allowed yourself to feel pride which is interesting to me. I would have thought that you would have allowed yourself to feel pride regularly, but you said no. The first time you really allowed yourself to feel pride was in 2016, when you and Art Garfunkel are sitting together on a bench at Columbia, one of the benches that you sat on when you were first freshman. And you say of it, I think the title of the chapter is Old Friends Sat on a Park Bench Like Bookends, the Simon and Garfunkel song um, from Bookends. And that's when you say I felt pride. So talk about this a little bit, because it's remarkable to me that you live this life where as Helen Keller said, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with your heart. Well, the the background for this is that um, National Geographic was doing a story on the end of blindness. And uh, they had my story in there as well. And what they asked me to do, would I repeat the subway story with Arthur 
50 years later to go through it, but this time arm in arm, not his trailing. And I can't tell you what happened, but what really happened. But when we got to Columbia, the two of us together and sat down on the park bench, there came over me this feeling because I was looking back at those past 50 years and I never took time to really rest. There was no time. And for the first time, I said, yeah, you did a good job. Which may be the understatement of the century, that you did a good job. I think what you've done is is remarkable. So, Sandy, I have a question that I have to ask, which is the title of the book, Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend, a famous line from a Simon and Garfunkel song. Tell us about why you picked this as the title for your book. After I lost my eyesight and Arthur urged me to come back to Columbia, telling me that he would certainly read to me and help in any other way that he could. The nights or days that he came in to read to me, he would come in and announce, Sanford, darkness is going to read to you from the Iliad, or Sanford, darkness is going to read to you from the New York Times, or whatever else darkness wanted to read to me. And I suppose he meant that for him, his voice was emerging from the darkness. It's great. And we'll have to leave it to Simon or Garfunkel to tell us who came up with the Hello Darkness, My Old Friend line. Right, right. So so there lies the mystery. All right. Well, that'll inspire me to try to get each of them on our podcast and ask them that question, and I can relate it back to you. Fair enough. I'd like to, as we get ready to wind up this conversation, talk about two things. One is the importance for you of prayer in your journey, and then the Tikkun Olam project. So can you talk to us about those, Sandy? Sure. As you pointed out, on February 13, 1961, I lay in a Detroit hospital, my eyes dead, and no place to go. And I laid there a few days. And however this happens in one psyche, I don't know. But I made a promise to God that if I ever recover, I will do everything in my power that I can to make sure that no one else should ever go blind. And I have been working on that project ever since. Sue and I, 2012, created a prize to go to the people who contributed most to ending blindness. And then I recently, in the last year, was approached by Johns Hopkins, and they asked if they could create the Sanford and Susan Greenberg Center to end blindness. And that could be construed as a fulfillment of a prayer 
or simply an opportunity to do more of what I've been trying to do. Tikkun olam in Hebrew means to repair the world. Yes, sir. Your tikkun olam effort is this effort that is intended to end blindness in our lifetime. Yes, sir. And what I guess I want to ask you is how can our listeners help? That's a difficult question to answer. You border on the tawdry when you talk about sending in money. So I'm not, not inclined to respond that way. That's a very, very profound question, and I, I don't have a good answer for you. Well, perhaps one answer might be that we, all of us, behave with the humanity that you've exhibited over your lifetime. How's that for a possible answer? Too much. There's your modesty, I think. No, it's not modesty. It's just candor. Well, it's refreshing, nonetheless. Look, you remember Lou Gehrig, right? Sure. The luckiest man on the face of the earth. Right. Well, I inherited his mantle because there's no other way that you could lay out what you laid out this afternoon without agreeing that I am the luckiest guy in the world. Well, Sandy Greenberg, the book is Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, How Daring Dreams and Unyielding Friendship Turn One Man's Blindness into an Extraordinary Vision for Life. And I have to say that I am extraordinarily privileged to have spent this hour speaking with you today. Thank you so much for appearing with me today on That Said. My pleasure. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.